did you know that there is a school that trains baseball umpires? Did anybody know that? There's a school for that. It's called the Wendelstelt Umpire School, and it trains them to be professional umpires. It's the only independently run professional umpire training program that's recognized by both the minor leagues and the major leagues. So in the mornings, imagine this. The students, the umpires, are sitting in these stuffy classrooms, and they're reviewing the rule book. Baseball has a ton of rules, okay? Then in the afternoon, they go outside onto the green fields, and they work in small groups, okay? They're, trying to, they're learning how to practice where to stand, how to track the ball with their eyes. They run drills so that they learn how to make calls in accordance with the rules, And their goal is to achieve an accuracy rate of 95% or higher. It's nine hours a day, six days a week for five weeks, all devoted to one single purpose, to learn how to accurately see what's in front of you. Their job is to accurately see this baseball world in front of them in order to make accurate calls. Now, this morning, we have a similar, similar, but yet a sacred duty. More than just seeing the world in front of us, we want to accurately see ourselves, which is probably the hardest thing to see truly, right? Like, no, we, no one lies to ourselves more than we do. It's, it's hardest to be honest with ourselves. See, today in Psalm 131, we're talking about humility, Charles Spurgeon said of, one, of Psalm 131 that it was one of the shortest to read and yet one of the longest to learn, right? See, it's difficult to learn about humility because it goes against the normal tendency in humanity which trends towards pride. Pride is deeply rooted in our sinful nature and when we try to get rid of it, if we ever get to that place, we really just try to do surface level stuff, right? We just want to pull the stuff right up on the surface and we never do the hard work of digging down and getting out the roots of pride. And so what happens? It just sprouts up again. And so this morning, Psalm 131 gives us insight into the principle of humility. Now, after we see the principle, we'll move forward and we'll see the process of how to actually get humility. And finally, we'll see how to practice it and live it out. So we'll see the principle of humility. We'll see the process of humility. And lastly, we'll see the practice of humility, if you're taking notes today. Look with me at at Psalm 131, verse 1. We'll have the words on the screen. Listen to what he says. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. If you had to sum up this one verse with one word, it would be this, humility. It's a beautiful description. Here we get to see humility defined, and not really with like an Oxford Dictionary stoic definition, but more in terms of principles. It's more telling us what it is rather than, uh, it's less telling us what it is, and it's more showing us what it actually looks like. And it's interesting, he describes it beautifully and never even uses the word humility, does he? Instead, he describes humility and how he sought to live in a humble way. Now, this isn't boasting. He's not up there saying, hey, guys, I am humble. 
That's not what he's doing. That would actually be contrary to humility, right? He's not claiming to achieve perfect humility. He doesn't say he has an absolutely prideless heart because no one is completely pride-free, right? But that said, his claim of humility is that he's walked with God long enough. He's experienced God's grace in his life that he could truthfully say that his life was marked by humility. See, this morning, we've got the psalmist praying to God, and we're actually getting to read it. We're reading his prayer. It's like holy eavesdropping. He's speaking to God. Now, it would be really presumptuous if this guy was full of pride, no humility at all, right? He's praying to God and making these claims like, God, look at who I am and how I've lived if it weren't true, right? That's not what's going on. We're reading this song of prayer by the psalmist, and he's not making a boastful declaration. He's having a conversation with the Lord. See, that's really what prayer is. It's just conversation with God. See, we tend to overcomplicate it. We think we've got to add in all these like big, holy, pious words. It's just talking to God. In fact, Lisa helped remind me of that this week at Gospel Community, that it's just talking with God, plain and simple. And so as he describes humility, we see three principles emerge. First, he describes humility as a level heart. See, it's a level heart. He says, my heart is not lifted up. And see, when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's not simply or exclusively referring to our emotions or compassion. The heart in the biblical idea refers to the center of a person. It's the the core of who you are. It's to speak about your character or that inward self. It's looking at your attitudes and your posture, your desires, your motives. All of that is wrapped up in the heart. See, the heart is not only what you think and feel, but it's actually the thinking, feeling unit of the whole person. It's not merely the place of sentimentality or compassion. It is those things, but the way the Bible speaks about it, it's a lot more than that. It's the birthplace of your desires and your motivations. Another way to think about it is when we speak about the heart, we're speaking about the thing that is truly driving you. When you get at the question of why, why did you do this? And you get beneath that, and you get beneath that, and you get all the way down to the very bottom of it. That's the heart. It's what's really driving you. So he says, my heart is not lifted up. And this is important, because he's not saying my heart is overinflated. And it's also not underinflated, it's level. See, humility is not low self-esteem. Sometimes we confuse those things, right? That's not what humility is. Humility is not low self-esteem or it's not over self-esteem. It's not too much. It's not too high or too low. That's right. It's like Goldilocks. It's accurate. You knew that was coming, right? It's accurate. It's level. It's seeing who God has made you and not desiring more and at the same time not desiring less. It's living out who God made you to be. And level gets at that idea, right, of not being too high or too low. How many of you ever used a level before, right? It's got that little bubble on it, and you can tell when it's set right, right? If it's too high on one side, what does the bubble do? It moves on you, right? And then you you try to readjust, and you go too far, and that bubble moves again. But you know your level when the bubble is in between those two black lines. That's where you want it. 
Not one side too high or too low. In fact, in woodworking, it's one of my hobbies, when something is uh, uh, flush or when something is sticking out too far, the term that's used is it's proud. And I thought that is a really good way to think about it. If something is over the edge, a woodworker would say that it's, it's proud. It's, it's, it's stepped out too far. But you also don't, when you're making a joint one, it scaled back either. It needs to be flush. It needs to be humble. That's what he's talking about here. And it's important that he starts with the heart because if pride is in your heart, what happens? It defiles everything. If the heart is contaminated, everything that flows out from the heart will be contaminated as well. So what the psalmist is doing is he's rejecting and refusing to let his heart be overrun with pride. Now pride is that ancient sin where we undervalue other people and at the same time, overvalue ourselves. Pride is a life that is really obsessed with the self. So this can play out in being self-loathing and self-exalting, right? It can, it can manifest itself in either way. And here's how you know, the common denominator is self, right? If you're self-loathing, you're looking at you, right? If you're self-exalting, you're looking at you. It's two different ways that pride can manifest itself in your life. A prideful person is self-preoccupied, hardly ever pleased, and easily offended. Anybody know prideful people? Yeah, of course you do. Anyone willing to say that about themselves, right? That's all of us. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not self-pity. It's not self-deprecation. It's not self-emasculation. It's not self-hatred. Humility is not downplaying your strengths or not taking credit for things when you actually should take credit for them. See, Tim Keller writes this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. Hear this, it's thinking of myself less often. It's a great way to think about it. That means we need to see ourselves accurately the way that God sees us. Just like the umpires are being trained to see the world accurately, we need to learn to do the same. Not thinking more of ourselves or less, but thinking accurately, seeing us truly. See, when we do that, we can celebrate the gifts God has given us to the glory of God. And we can also recognize our weaknesses to the glory of God. And we can find joy in helping others and letting other people help us. When your heart is level, you're in that place. That's humility. That's a level heart. Second, humility is level eyes. See, that theme of being level comes back up again. This time, the word picture is about your eyes not being raised too high. Now, going from the heart to the eyes makes complete sense. You know why? What the heart desires, the eyes will instinctively look for. See, our glances are driven by our desires. It starts here, we desire something, and then instinctively we go looking for it. The eyes are so important because they're the window to the soul. You know what I mean? When you want to know someone's intention, and when you want someone to listen to you, what do we do? We look in their eyes. We even ask for it. We say, hey, this matters to me. Look at my eyes. I may say that a hundred times a day with my kids. What we feel on the inside appears through our 
eyes. And so he says, my eyes, they're not raised too high. That's another way of saying, I don't look down on other people. I don't have a proud demeanor. See, to raise the eyes, it's, a, it's an idiom to speak about haughty eyes. Anyone heard that phrase before, haughty eyes? We don't really use it anymore. I don't mean H-O-T-T-Y, like haughty. I mean H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, haughty eyes, the proud eyes. Other translations actually say, my eyes are not haughty. See, haughty eyes look down on other people. Have you ever been in a room with lots of other people? Maybe you were at a meeting or a conference or at some kind of social function, and you start talking to somebody. You think, hey, we're having a, a really good conversation. And you immediately notice they could care less what you're talking about. And what are they doing with their eyes? They're scanning around the room to see if there's someone more important to talk to. You're kind of good for now, but as soon as something better comes up, they're going to immediately go, oh, hey, i got to go use the restroom, and then dart across the room to that more important person. Those are haughty eyes. Humble eyes are level. They don't look too high and mighty. They don't look down on others. See, pride is overvaluing ourselves, and it's undervaluing others. And we can do that with our eyes. Pride's not content just to focus on me. In fact, when pride is really turning the corner, it's not just about looking down on others. It's, it's so that I can look down on you so that I can elevate myself. That's one way to, to uh, overinflate yourself is to look at someone, undervalue them. And so when they're losing value, you're gaining value. Prideful eyes will envy, they'll hate, they'll judge, they'll nitpick, they'll grumble, they'll complain, and they'll criticize others. And the psalmist is saying, I have rejected that. Third, humility is level ambition. So it's a level heart, it's level eyes. There's also a level ambition. He said, did you remember? I don't occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. See, he starts to address pride as it relates to selfish ambition. Now, this is the kind of ambition that's steeped in presumption. Again, notice the theme of being level. Now, I, don't, I don't go after things that are too great or too marvelous for me. This is a caution against overestimating and overreaching beyond your capacity. See, pride will create in us this inordinate desire for greatness and accomplishment. Right? We feel like we're entitled to something. And what happens is we become occupied by it. It starts to take over the thought space in our life. And we're thinking, I've got to have this. Now, this isn't saying sell yourself short. It's not saying play scared or play small. This is not a celebration of underachievers or mediocrity. That's not what he's saying. This is simply to distinguish between selfish ambition, this drive that is meant to um, go after the things that you want versus a Godward ambition. This is showing us the stark contrast between the servant of God who directs their energies and passions and drive in a Godward direction instead of a selfish or self-centered ambition. It's cautioning us against blind, unchecked ambition when we're unable to see our own capacity and our own limits. And when we chase things that are unattainable, we're robbed from the contentment that comes from running the race that God has actually set for us, not the race of our preferences. See, there's a difference between 
those two things. Often we'll scorn a path of life or work that's actually within our capacity range, in our skill set, because in our pride we think those things are beneath us. So instead we overreach and overextend to serve and work in ways we've never been called to or even qualified to do. That kind of self-seeking creates restlessness in your life, discontentment in your life. And the psalmist is saying, at least for today, I'm content. I have peace. I'm level. He's not striving for things that are beyond him. He's got a self-awareness to know his own strengths and his weaknesses. He has level goals and plans and dreams and achievements that are shaped by God's will, not his own. Let me ask you this morning, is your ambition Godward or selfish? It's an important question that we have to ask. Are your goals and plans shaped by God or are they shaped by the world? All of this, having a level heart, level eyes, and level ambition requires self-awareness and a desire that when you see pride, to put it to death. Charles Spurgeon, who's worth quoting at length here, says this. High things may suit others who are of a greater statue, and yet they may be quite unfit for us. A man does well to know his own size. Ascertaining, understanding his own capacity, he'll be foolish if he aims at that which is beyond his reach, straining himself and thus injuring himself. It is just on God's part that those who wish to be everything should in the end be nothing. He goes on to say, it's a righteous retribution from God when every matter turned out to be too great for the man who would only handle great matters and everything proves to be too high for the man who exercised himself in things too high for him. See, when the heart and the eyes and the hands are level, when they're humble, they pursue the right desires, gaze on the right beauty, and focus on doing the right things. That's the principle of humility. Let's look at verse 2 and see how we get there, the process of humility. He says, But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Verse 2 begins by saying that he calmed and quieted his soul. The restless soul, the one we're all born with, has found something to still the storm. The discontented soul has found contentment, and the noisy soul has found quiet. So to say that he's calmed and quieted his soul presupposes what? That there was a time when it wasn't quiet, that when it wasn't calm. Now this word for calm here is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's an agricultural term. And it literally means to level and break up land to make it farmable. It's to smooth it out and to make it ready for cultivation. And I don't know if we've got any farmers in the room, but that takes a lot of work. That doesn't come naturally. The ground doesn't break itself up into nice uh, level rows for plowing on its own, does it? No, it doesn't. There's destruction before cultivation, right? You've got to break up the ground before you can plant the seed. There's tilling before harvesting. And it's important to remember that neither the soul nor the soil can till itself, right? It can't do it on its own. It needs the determined and careful hand of the farmer. 
Next, he says he's quieted his soul. I'm always just want to stop and pause when I come across words like that in Scripture because we are not a quiet civilization. We're plagued by noise. And not only are we surrounded by it, we actually seek it out all the time. People get nervous when it's quiet. Some of you are squeaming right now, right? And I don't mean just no volume. I mean quiet both internally and externally. This is that place where you're not reading or thinking, not playing games on your phone, just stillness and quiet. In fact, to get the soul quiet, you have to fight for it. So how did the psalmist get there? He actually gives us a vivid illustration to show how he calmed and quieted his soul and learned humility. He says, like a weaned child with its mother, so my soul is within me. Weaning a child from mother's milk to a diet of solid food is no easy task. When you've got a hungry baby, she'll reach out to mom for food, as has been her routine and custom since birth for nourishment. Baby is not content when she's hungry to sit in mother's lap. The simple act of being in her arms triggers that desire to have mother's milk. And when he's denied, he'll get agitated and start to root around. He starts to squirm anxiously, looking for milk. And if he doesn't get immediate attention and satisfaction, what happens? He starts to fret and to fuss. And this child has no concept of time and patience and trust that mom is not gonna let her beloved go hungry. And so you see them go through the five stages of grief. First, there's denial. Then anger, bargaining sets in, depression, and finally, acceptance. And when you see that weaned child a few weeks later, it's like they're a completely different child. Now, what you got to know about weaning is that it's not the destruction of the appetite. That's not what's going on. It's actually the controlling and the changing of it. See, weaning directs the desire towards what's needed for that next stage of development. A loving mother knows that eventually they've got to get to solid food. Weaning directs that desire. See, a weaned child has learned to trust that mom will provide and that there'll be other ways of connecting with her for closeness and comfort. See, the weaned child is not being rejected. No, the mother is directing them towards maturity and we all know that with maturity comes change. Now you take this weaned child now and you place them in mother's lap. And he can rest and sit with mom at peace just to be with mom. Unweaned children cry in mother's arms till they get something from her, right? Her milk. And only then are they quiet. But a weaned child is content and satisfied to just be with mom. Her very presence is what they're after. The psalmist says he's found rest for his soul. Like a child grown past the instinctive demands of infancy, he's now content just to be with God. See, proud people have not weaned from the ego of entitlement. 
When you're proud, you think you know what's best. When you're proud, you think you should get to determine what you need and want, and it should be on your terms. And the proud heart will wreck homes, marriages, businesses, friendships, schools, churches. A proud heart can really even mess up a whole country. Not only are the proud demeaning and entitled, if you are around pride people long enough, you find they're anxious. They've not come to that place of peace and stillness and quiet. The proud don't know how to trust God like a mother with her weaning child that God knows best and will give them what's best. So again, we've got to ask, do you find yourself worried and stressed on a day-to-day basis? Could it actually be that it's pride that's causing it? Now, I'm not saying all stress and all anxiety comes from pride, but this verse teaches us that enough of it does come from pride to give an honest look. See, worry and stress and anxiety, those are just our nice words to talk about fear. That's what those things are at their core. It's fear. And the proud fear not getting what they feel entitled to or think that they need to feel validated and secure. So to live humble, we've got to be weaned from our entitlement and our belief that we actually know what's best. Just like the soil doesn't till itself, and just like a child doesn't determine the time for weaning, remember, you can't wean yourself either. The mother weans the child, and so it is with us. And God in his love will remove the object of your entitlement and even the, lo- the objects of your longings to give you better food. That's what he's doing. He's not withholding from you. He's not on some cosmic power trip. He's taking the full force of his love, combined with the full force of his power, combined with the full force of his omniscience to take us where we need to go for our good. He's taking us down paths that we would never go to get us to a place on our spiritual journey that we need to get. And that we would never go to on our own. And you notice this illustration is perfect because it happens in the context of a loving relationship, right? No one doubts the mother's love for the child. The weaning process is not from some disinterested hand. It happens in a loving, connected relationship. And so it is with God. He's not disinterested, disconnected, or distant. He loves you and he's with us throughout the whole process. Brother, sister, God is not bent on destroying your will and appetite. He's bent on shaping it towards things that will bring you to life. He's bent on shaping it towards good and true and beautiful ends. So this often means that God will take things that you used to love and make them taste bitter to you. Other times he'll actually have to just remove the thing that you feel like you have to have. But more often than not, God will wean us from things of the world by giving us better food. But we have to receive that. See, this process will give us a humble heart and a restful soul. It'll quiet the noise. There'll be a peace that surpasses all understanding. There'll be a steadiness that replaces the hurriedness. To-do lists will no longer define you. Achievements won't be your validation anymore. The fear of failure won't keep you up at night. See, the humble person, the calm person can listen to another person speak 
And he's not obsessed with thinking about what you're going to say next. Regrets become distant memories and criticism won't crush you anymore. When you've been humbled, there's a satisfaction and an appreciation of life that people around you will find calming. You ever known those people? They're just, they have a calming presence to them. You just want to be around them. It's because they've learned to calm and quiet their soul. That's the soul that's gone through the, the, the humbling process. So we've seen the principle and the process of humility. Let's look at the last verse and see how we live it out with the practice of humility. Verse three. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist realizes that Israel may face many struggles, but their ultimate trust, their ultimate hope needs to be in the Lord, the one who can actually take care of them, just like the mother with the weaned child. Now, if you notice, there's a shift from talking about himself, and now he's directing his conversation and his focus towards others. See, that's what happens when you become humble. The, the shift focuses from the self onto others. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says about humility. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. See, humble people don't just care about themselves. They care about other people. The psalmist shifts shifts gears and looks at his brothers and sisters in the Lord, he says to them and he says to us, hope in the Lord. He's gone through the process of weaning. He's come out on the other side. He's learned humility. He's tasted the better food. And now he encourages us to do the same. Trust in the Lord. Put your hope in him. When we practice humility, our, shift, our, fo- our focus shifts from the self to serving others. And he doesn't give them some kind of coffee mug platitude. He doesn't say, have hope. It'll work out. It'll get better. He tells them where to direct their hope, doesn't he? He says, hope in the Lord. So what ways are you seeking to serve your brothers and sisters to help them hope in the Lord? Psalm 131 is the testimony of a forgiven sinner who's been weaned from a life of pride. He's tasted the better food of humility, and now he's encouraging and inviting us to do the same. If you look at the heading of the psalm, it tells us that it's a psalm of David. Now, I want to get something clear. There's a tendency when we read some of these psalms like this to dismiss it and go, well, that sounds nice. That's really blissful, right? You've, you've calmed and quieted your soul. Must be nice, right? That's too unattainable. That's too detached from real life. I want you to know, David was a man who was the king of a large and expanding kingdom. Think about his day-to-day life. He, was, he came from humble shepherd roots and found himself as the king, right? At one point in his life, he was a fugitive, an adulterer, a murderer. At one point, he was called a man after God's own heart. He saw the death of his children. He even had some children who tried to kill him. He experienced pressure, joy, agitation, affection, outrage, courage, despair, fear, hope, and everything in between. 
He had a noisy, anxious soul. But he says he found peace when and only when he was humbled by the Lord. See, our culture says to get there, what you really need is self-help. This psalm is saying, no, no, no. You need the kind of help that comes from without. You need divine intervention. So you'll either pursue the humility and peace from being humbled by God, or you'll chart your own path and live with the ever-increasing noise and static of a restless soul. One of my favorite authors, David Pallison, he's a biblical counselor. He's written a ton of helpful books. One of the things he likes to do is take psalms and turn them into anti-psalms to help you feel the contrast and the difference. And so I've taken his anti-psalm of 131. I'm going to read it for us. I'll have the words on the screen. Listen to the anti-psalm 131. Self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and too wonderful for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally, like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. I'm restless with my demands and worries. And I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time pretty powerful right when you see it in contrast and that's the reality we either will live out psalm 131 or we're going to live out psalm anti-psalm 131 how many of you today if you were truly honest with yourself feel like this anti-psalm is more indicative of your day-to-day life than you'd even like to admit so the question is which song are you going to sing are you going to see the song of ascent that leads to humility and peace? Or are you going to sing the song of dissent, the song of pride and anxiety? Many of us live day to day with anxious and noisy souls, and it has everything to do with our pride. Remember, humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself more often, which, guess what, frees you up to think more about God. That's where you go. That's where healing comes from. And that begins to cultivate a relationship with him where you start to really believe that he is taking care of your needs and you cultivate this trust that you can say, even though I can't see what's going on, I trust that he knows best. And when you start living like that, humility will start to ask, how can I help others find the hope that I have found? Now, thanks be to God that hope is not some abstract idea. For the believer in Christ, hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. See, he lived the life of Psalm 131. He wasn't self-absorbed and he didn't look down on others. He actually lowered himself to the place of a servant. And he humbled himself to the point of death Paul tells us, even death on a cross. He wasn't concerned with his will, but the will of the Father. If you had met Jesus, you would have found in him to be the most centered, whole, intact person who had ever lived. When you read about him in the Gospels, you find people were just amazed at being in his presence. He was never hurried, and he was never noisy in his soul. He was content and fully present everywhere he went. 
He enjoyed time with the Father simply just to be with him as his beloved son. And when it came to the point of dying for our sins, he calmed and quieted his soul before the Father in the garden as he faced death. His hope was fully fixed on the Lord. And in doing so, he lived the life that you and I struggle and fail to live every single day. And because he lived that life, that's the life he gives to you. See, he can give you what he has because he lived that life. And he takes what you could never unload on your own because he's willing and ready to receive it. Only he can calm the noisy and, and loud soul. And when you receive that gift of grace, everything that's true of Jesus will become true of you. You really can have a peaceful, quiet, at-rest soul. It's the cure for the proud heart. It's the cure to the noisy soul. And it's the only hope worth putting your trust in. As we close today, I want you to know the only way to get there is through self-awareness. You've got to actually realize and recognize that you've got a noisy and discontent soul. The impact of this psalm will only go as far as you are willing to see. So do you have the courage today to take an accurate look at yourself? One of the greatest gifts that you could give your spouse, that you could give your roommate, that you could give your children, your coworkers, your family, and actually the greatest gift you could give yourself this morning is to take an honest look and to grow in self-awareness. Now let me be the first to confess, this is a very difficult psalm to preach because I have to look at my own heart and say, where is pride ruling and reigning in my heart? Because I am not uh, above being pride. I have haughty eyes. I see that there are things in my life that are above my ambition, and I'm chasing things for my own glory, not the Lord. There are days when my soul is restless and the noise is deafening. I'm not uh, out of that because I'm a pastor. I'm fully in that right there with you as a man. So if you're like me, you need to get some time this week to be still and ask God to be present in your life and to begin that process of humbling. We all need to repent of the, of the sin of pride. My hope is that even in the rest of the time that we have together, you will start to identify some of the things in your life that the spirit of the living God is bringing to your mind right now. God is working and he's moving here right now. If you're taking notes, write those down so you don't forget them when you walk out of here and head to lunch. Let's make Psalm 131 the prayer of our heart this week.